welcome back to Vandenberg Flash Focus, your source for fast and focused analysis on foreign policy and national security news from around the world. Today, we're discussing the deployment of a Kenyan-led multinational security force to Haiti. I'm your host, Samuel Byers, and today I'm joined by two guests, the Vandenberg Coalition's own Senior Policy Director, Anna Quintana, as well as our advisory board member, Ambassador J. Peter Fahm, former U.S. Special Envoy for the Great Lakes region of Africa and for the Sahel region. And Ambassador, welcome to Flash Focus. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having us, Sam. So we're doing things a little differently today with uh, two guests instead of one, since we have a topic that crosses uh, regional boundaries. Last month, the United United Nations Security Council voted to support a security force deployment to Haiti due to protracted violence and instability in that country. But what makes this situation different from similar missions in the past is the fact that rather than the United States leading this force or an official UN uh, mission, uh, Kenya is the lead country sending security forces to Haiti. Uh, So, Anna, to start with you, most Americans and even most foreign policymakers probably don't spend a a lot of time thinking about Haiti, except when something big happens, like the 2010 earthquake, for instance. Can you bring our listeners up to speed on what's been happening in the country over the past few months and why the U.N. uh, approved this intervention? Sure. So so this so Haiti essentially has been in this protracted state of crises, you know, with kind of it ebbs and flows at times. But it's it's been particularly acute since the assassination of Jovenel Moisey, the, the president, in July of 2021. And the situation has become essentially untenable. I mean, Haiti's descended into a collapsed state. Gangs control, you know, critical critical sectors within the country, you know, key points of infrastructure from fuel to, you know, telecommunications to whatnot. And, you know, many embassies, including the United States' embassies, have have been forced to evacuate much of their staff and essentially, you know, running a bare bones skeleton operation. And so, and and not to mention, I mean, also there's been a, a massive uptick as a result of of the violence, um, a a surge in Haitian migrants to the United States. So you know, as as a result of that, many folks within the international community started thinking about like, hey, what can we do here? Um, what can we do here that's also different? Because this is frankly the fourth now international mission to Haiti in the last three some odd decades. And so the plan is to have a country like Kenya with experience in 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 multinational kind of security operations to con- to, to to take the lead here. And the plan is it's essentially to provide law enforcement support to the Haitian National Police and to kind of see if there can be some sort of security stabilization process to kind of lead to potentially an election in Haiti at some point in in the near future. You mentioned um, that this is, you know, different from from past uh Uh, past similar interventions, past peacekeeping efforts. Can you give us a little more uh, background on what makes this different? Why did the UN try to decide to do this in a different manner this time? 
Sure. So, you know, I, I, international intervention efforts in Haiti just tend to have a very bad, leave a bad taste in a Haitian's mouth. Frankly, you know, the UN during one of the previous peacekeeping operations, um, there was a horrible outbreak of cholera and very serious and kind of credible um, reports of sexual, of pretty rampant sexual assault by 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 peacekeepers. And so the the idea was one to make this something that's more the Haitians just in a, are much more much more involved in the process. That's one and two to not to kind of make this a multi-layered effort rather than just responding to the crisis and just addressing the actual crisis at hand, which is a security crisis, but also working towards helping um, improve things on the governance side, on the humanitarian assistance side, and making this also a process that's joined in by by other countries where other countries have buy-in and it's not just led by a outsized power right that that's coming in and essentially you know leading the charge but rather it's kind of a, a coalition effort so ambassador a lot of people expect this sort of intervention to be coming from a country like the united states or europe uh, but this time, like we've mentioned, Kenya is the lead uh, lead country of this uh, multinational operation. Uh, why Kenya specifically? Can you give us a little history on similar operations they participated in in the past? Certainly. And Kenya is no stranger to international operations, uh, especially peacekeeping and security operations. Uh, uh, the country's participated in African uh efforts, regional efforts, going back to the 1970s. But beginning in the late 1980s, Kenya participated in the Iran-Iraq military observer group uh, after the Iran-Iraq war of the 1988 uh, uh, through 1990. Uh, it's also participated in numerous missions abroad, uh, places as different as Bos uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, in Croatia, uh, Kuwait, uh, as well as various UN missions in Africa, twice in Liberia and Sierra Leone. Uh, so it's a country with a long tradition of participation in these operations. We we tend to think of Africa as a place where a lot of peacekeeping takes place, and that's true. Uh, 60, 70% of UN peacekeeping missions and personnel are have historically been uh, over the years deployed in Africa. But as a result of that, and this is one of the successes, I think, of U.S. engagement, has been the development of African capacities for participation in these missions, training, uh, you know, through a State Department uh, administered program. Uh, the, uh, uh, the U.S. has, over the last decade and a half, spent a very modest sum of money, when one thinks about it, about probably a billion and a half, uh, training some 30 some odd African countries, uh, including key partners like Kenya, to engage in peacekeeping. And it's uh, they now make up those partners who've been trained, make up more than 60 percent of the uh, of the peacekeeping forces that have been deployed, taking the burden off other countries' militaries. Uh, the other thing is that a lot of this is order that Anna spoke about in Haiti. The Kenyans have it not so much in their own country, but right next door. When you talk about a state that has dissolved, if you will, they've been living for three decades with Somalia, where uh, everyone may pretend that there's a state and a government there, but for all intents and purposes, the 
northern Somaliland uh, separate region being a, uh, a different case. The rest of Somalia has the state has dissolved three decades ago, and the Kenyans have been coping with those uh, consequences ever since. Could you fill us in a little bit more on um, on the Kenyan perspective on this sort of uh, operation as it relates to to Haiti? Is this something um, that is contentious in Kenyan politics or or is this uh, par for the course since they've participated in so many similar operations in the past? Uh, in many respects, it's a little of both, uh, Sam. Uh, it's par for the course in the sense they've done this before and places far from their own borders, uh, you know, places that are conflicted even today. Uh, mentioned the Balkans, but also Lebanon. Uh, so these are not easy missions. They've taken them on uh, well beyond Africa. So it should be non-controversial. However, as we know for our own country, uh, when things get politicized, they can become controversial. There uh, have been questions raised on the constitutionality within the Kenyan constitutional framework of the president committing to this operation without securing the buy-in of the parliament. Uh, and that's probably putting a fine point on it, but many of these uh, members who are objecting themselves when they were, their party was in government, were enthusiasts for missions abroad as well. So I think that, that there's a little bit of politicization, which is not unexpected, but uh, nonetheless, a little frustrating. One might add that the, the reasons for this are manifold. Uh, first, certainly, they there are resources to be had from doing things like this, both for the individual peacekeeper or security personnel deploy, a chance to earn foreign exchange, but also for the, for, for the governments to uh, get training, to get resources for their security forces, whether they be military or police. And there's Kenya is trying and has done a program raising its international profile uh, uh, internationally and being trying to be a, an African leader, not only within the continent, but a voice for Africa beyond. Uh, you know, one thanks to the uh, the Kenyan permanent representative to the UN, Ambassador Martin Kamani, uh, who's known to a number of people uh, here in Washington because he spent a number of years in a number of institutions, in fact, worked for me for a while. Uh, when I was at uh, the Atlantic Council. But uh, his speech on the debate right after the Russian invasion of Ukraine was arguably the best speech of the night uh, on principle and on uh, application. So the Kenyans have been trying to up their game geopolitically, and I think they they recognize the opportunity for leadership here. So moving back to the Western Hemisphere, Anna, can you put this in context, um, this operation in context for how does this affect other countries in the Caribbean, in the Western Hemisphere more broadly, uh, in the United States? Sure. So I, I think, you know, we it, it's really important to to kind of double down on the, the comparison that um, that Ambassador Fahm made about Kenya's experience in Somalia and how this will translate into Haiti, because frankly, a lot of policymakers, and rightfully so, tend to refer to Haiti as the Somalia of the Caribbean, because that's essentially what Haiti has descended to. And I think, you know, kind of within the broader 
context of kind of what's also occurring on in, on on the back end here of not just the security crisis, it's also the governance crisis. You know, similar to Somalia, Haiti has no functional government. There is, it's you know, the international community may may treat the acting interim prime minister as someone who is in charge of the country, but to be frank, he is absolutely not. And and just lower beyond that, there really is no governance structure. So on the back end, you know, you have CARICOM, the, the Caribbean community, um, which is the essentially it's all the countries within the, the Caribbean that have been trying to mediate the the political crisis, right, to find some sort of resolution between Haitian civil society, Haitian political actors, and to negotiate to some sort of transitional governance uh, agreement. Because what good is having security if you essentially don't have a government in place? But this, uh, these, this, this kind of mediation process has also been quite, you know, just complicated. I mean, you have various different political actors within Haiti and different economic actors who essentially just have a different view as to how Haiti ought to be governed. And that's, and these disagreements are essentially playing out in the streets because gangs operate as essentially like the enforcement mechanism of, of, you know, Haitian economic elites. Um, and so, you know, as as this kind of deployment uh, potentially uh, could potentially appear on on you know kind of within the foreseeable future, these these mediation efforts, right? Caricom's efforts are it's that's also it's going to be very important to watch as well as as well as the the Kenyan political dynamics. Um, and and so I, I you know I I think kind of we to to look at kind of how this is impacting the the Western Hemisphere you see it playing out in in the Haitian migration crisis you see this playing out in in kind of in in many countries in the Western Hemisphere and frankly their but besides Caricom and their ambivalence to to what's going on in Haiti because you know this is again it's the fourth potential deployment to Haiti in the last three decades but I think. Frankly, this this can't just be a, you know, the, the Kenyans definitely have skin in the game here and they're going to play a critical role. But we need more countries in the Western Hemisphere to stand to, to stand up and kind of play, be an active participant in this. You mentioned the uh, the migrant crisis and, um, you know, instability in Haiti and the, the collapse of the government um, uh, causing people to leave the country, come to the United States, other regional um you know, other countries in the region. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because that's something I know a lot of uh, Americans are playing, paying, paying close attention to. Sure. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, if folks remember um, about a, some, a year or some odd ago in, in Del Rio, when there was the, um, those infamous pictures of border agents supposedly, you know, um, acting violent towards um, towards Haitian migrants. I think that's when it finally caught onto the broader kind of national conversation of just Haitians, Haitians arriving at the border. Haitians have been one of the largest group of groups of migrants, um, one of the rather, rather one of the largest nationalities um, coming to the border over the last year, some odd and a half. Many have been fleeing from countries within um within the western hemisphere they've either been in brazil or chile that was they were part of the the cohort that that departed uh after one of either series of after many of one of the natural disasters that that occurred in haiti and have been coming to the united states and others are folks who've been either coming you know via boat or some other 
um, illicit mechanism or kind of some other illicit trafficking network to the United States. And I think, you know, Sam, before I forget, and one point that I think really plays a, a key a key role here, and this is something that's also, and I'd love to hear kind of Ambassador Fahm's view on this, is the kind of just taking a bit of a step back and looking at this from like a broader geopolitical lens is the potential um, spoiler role that China can play here and kind of just what this means for broader geopolitics, because Haiti is one of the few remaining countries who retains, who, who is a diplomatic ally of Taiwan. And just thinking through just all the countries who've recently severed ties with Taiwan, whether it's been Nicaragua, um, Honduras, a few years ago, El Salvador, it's this it's this growing trend of countries and economically disadvantaged positions that China has been able to take advantage of. And obviously, that's something that's happening, you know, quite it's quite prevalent in, in Africa. And so I just, you know, love to hear if Ambassador Fahm potentially could think that could this potentially impact Kenya's role in Haiti and just kind of what's is is there is there something else that we should be paying attention to? Uh, Ambassador. Uh, thank you very much, uh, actually, uh, for that prompt, because actually uh, China has a history in Africa of uh, using its veto power on the Security Council to extort uh, uh, for approval of uh, Chapter 7 UN uh, obligatory funding for missions recognition. A good example was back in 2003, uh, Liberia at the time uh, uh, needed uh, with the uh, forcing out of uh, Charles Taylor uh, and the need for a transition there. Liberia needed a UN mission to help secure the country and disarm and set it on a, a, its way to uh, the peaceful evolution that we've seen in the last uh, uh, two decades. But the price of that was literally uh, the transitional authorities had to de-recognize, break diplomatic relations with Taiwan and establish them with the People's Republic of China. That was the price of getting a mission. So I'm not privy to all the negotiations that took place leading up to the Kenya mission, but I, I, I find noteworthy that it, this mission is authorized by the Security Council, but isn't taking place under Chapter 7 uh, of the UN Charter, but is actually voluntary contributions. So the the Biden administration has pledged 200 million toward it, and other countries are contributing to a fund. And uh, one wonders if uh, that might China's role in that and why it's being funded through that mechanism. But certainly, it's one it's a uh, something that's been in their playbook, and it's something to certainly to to keep in mind. Uh, another point I'd like to make uh, also on peace here. Remember one of the demographic facts that we uh, at least those of us who work on it, I forgot to remind people of is by mid-century, one in four working age persons across the planet is going to be an African. If one thinks of that, you know, peacekeepers, whether they be soldiers or police, are likely to be younger rather than older. So it's going to be this site of Africans leading peacekeeping missions well beyond the continent is going to become much more common in the coming years, just simply as a matter of global demographics. Excellent. Well, one last question to to round it round us out, and I'll I'll throw this open to both of you. You know, what uh, does this mean for the United States specifically, and what should American policymakers uh, keep an eye on as uh, Kenyan security forces head to Haiti in the near future? 
Well, uh, let me let me just take a, st- a stab and then leave the final word to Anna, who knows this region far better than I do. But I would say as a matter of principle for foreign policy, we've got to make sure that this mission is supported, uh, not just politically and diplomatically, but financially. Uh, uh, Kenya is doing better than most African countries. It's got a bullion economy. Uh, it's getting a lot of investment, but still, these things are expensive. They they don't have the resources for this type of thing. On the other hand, uh, this is something in our hemisphere. It's better to have a partner, a country that's a close U.S. partner and ally leading the mission, and it'll cost far less than our having to do anything near it ourselves. Uh, and that's where the the ball is going to drop uh, uh, if we have to pick it up uh, ourselves. Sure. So, sorry, Sam. No, oh, I, I was going to say um, I associate myself with everything that Ambassador Fom just said, and I would add that you know over the last, I guess, prior to joining Vandenberg over the last two and a half years, I led the Western Hemp Portfolio for for Chairman McCall, and so had to deal with the administration quite frequently on Haiti, and I think. You know, one thing that they need to do uh, that they that the United States ought to be doing a much better job of is articulating why this matters to the United States. The fact that there is a migration crisis, the fact that, you know, the Caribbean is essentially our third border, that there's a proliferation of arms trafficking from the United States to Haiti. I mean, the, the, the list of reasons just goes on and on. The other thing they they ought to do is they need to have, frankly, they need to actually develop a plan because they are, uh, the administration's Haiti policy has just been this, you know, sporadically, you know, kind of shooting from the hip sort of policy that they just, that they are just, you know, putting together, um, that there is, it's kind of this piecemeal process. There really is no strategically thought out policy and, and legislatively they are obligated to. Haiti is a pilot country under the Global Fragility Act and Haiti is, the, which essentially compels the administration to come up with some a new and innovative approach that is not just recycling the previous failed efforts of of the past and so you know i think just kind of i would say and also on top of that they need an ambassador to haiti i mean we to this day do not have an ambassador to haiti and haven't had one for for quite some time and that high level diplomatic engagement having that high level envoy matters greatly thank you both for joining us and thank you all for listening Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Flash Focus is a production of the Vandenberg Coalition. To connect and stay up to date on our work, follow our account on X at Vandenberg Co. Or visit www.vandenbergcoalition.org to learn more and subscribe to our weekly newsletter on foreign policy and national security beyond the water's edge. Until next time, I'm Samuel Byers, and this is Vandenberg Flash Focus.